which was a uh, uh, pretty traditional type uh, Zen theme for a sashim. Uh, looking at uh, teaching subjects that, uh, that very much fit into the tradition of, of, uh, of our uh, Soto Zen lineage. Beginning with tonight, on Thursday nights, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, what's come to be called engaged Buddhism which means we're going to be engaged in dukkha more broadly speaking. Traditionally, Buddhism has, has taught dukkha on an individual basis where we become very intimate and uh, aware of our own individual suffering brought on by the, uh, the roots of which are the three poisons of uh, ignorance, greed, and uh, hatred. Uh, but, but engaged Buddhism still works with those poisons, but now we're looking at it from a global standpoint. It's not uh, about me, or about you as individuals. It's about seeing our, we could kind of relate it to like collective karma. This is our collective dukkha. And the, uh, the issue at hand that David Loy is, uh, is uh, looking at in Ecodharma is, as the title suggests, the environment, ecology. Uh, one of the most critical uh, issues that, uh, that we find ourselves as a collective uh, force, uh, one of the most urgent issues that we're, we're faced with uh, in this day and age. So uh, David Loy starts off and what I'm gonna be looking at tonight is basically his introduction. Uh, which runs something like 13 pages, I think it was. So we're going to go through uh, just to kind of set the stage for uh, diving in next week and doing a chapter by chapter where we'll get more detailed into aspects of this crisis and, uh, and how our Dharma practice uh, relates to it needs to relate to it uh, in ways that can have an impact. So he, he begins by uh, telling us that traditional Buddhist teachings help us to wake up individually and realize, and through that awakening, to realize our interdependence with others. I think we're all pretty familiar with that basic core teaching throughout Buddhism, regardless of the tradition, Zen, Tibetan, Vipassana, Nichiren, Pure Land, uh, whatever the tradition, that is a key part of the core teaching. Uh, 
But now, he tells us, we also need to consider how Buddhism can help us wake up and respond to this new predicament that we find ourselves in today. And the reason being, this is you know, my uh, injection, is that it, this interdependence is, is both at the root of the problem and is also at the root of the solution. So we need, if, if we're going to see the problem in its depths, in its totality, we need to see it as a problem of interdependence. And that the solution we work to bring to it has to emanate out of that understanding. So interdependence figures hugely throughout this uh, project. So then he poses the question uh, for us to look at. What does this eco-crisis imply about how we understand and practice Buddhism? And he starts off with a very important point that we need to keep in mind as we go through the text. He says that we need to realize that escalating climate change is not the fundamental issue that confronts us today. I totally agree with him on this, that global warming is only part of a much larger environmental and social crisis that compels us to reflect on the values and direction of our new global civilization. While many people, and you'll, you'll uh, hopefully be able to relate to what I'm about to say, uh, many people assume that if we can just convert quickly enough to renewable sources of energy, our economy and society can continue to function indefinitely in much the same way as it has and as, as, as the path that it's currently uh, on. Uh, so, but but the, the reality is that climate change, as he puts it, is just the proverbial tip of the iceberg. The root issues here, as we're gonna see, point back to the three poisons. Certainly ignorance, delusion, which it, it, for our purposes we can see is the lack of understanding of the interdependence of all things. And also greed figures very hugely here. So he points out that we're already well into the planet's sixth great extinction event. And we've had some, uh, I mean, extinction events are, are have, have really uh, figured prominently in the history of life on this planet. 
you know, there have been five previous ones prior to the appearance of our species on the planet. The worst of those taking place somewhere, something I think it was like around 220, 225 million years ago at the end of the Permian era, when uh, we experienced global warming, obviously not created uh, by our activities at that time. But it was of such a magnitude that 95% of life went extinct. It took like 20, 30 million years for life to begin, begin to come back and flourish again. And it was at that stage that dinosaurs made their appearance. Uh, so we, we've gone through extinctions. This one is unique because the pr previous extinctions were the result of natural processes. The end of the Permian mass extinction, uh, scientists, the consensus seems to be that it was the result of massive volcanic activity and the chain reaction that that triggered which would ultimately, as I was saying, lead to the extinction of 95% of life on the planet at that time. Uh, so, so this, this extinction event is certainly going to accelerate because of global warming, but it's, we'd already, uh, gotten it uh, well on the way uh, before that became uh, uh, a major uh, issue. Just because of our huge footprint on this planet. And, you know, we're all aware of how we can hunt species to extinction. For money, quite often these days, killing elephants for I for the ivory in their tusks is just one of the more obvious examples. But so many species are under threat just because of our greed and our ability to profit by uh, their mass slaughter. So this is where this leads David Lloyd to say that we need to emphasize the intersection of these environmental issues around things like global warming with social justice concerns. Because when we bring greed into the picture, obviously this has ramifications well beyond just the environment. It's at the root of uh, growing inequalities among the, the various societies of this planet. 
And these, of course, are going to be exacerbated by the trend of global warming that we're on. So it's only going to get worse. And the driver is greed. So just briefly, since everybody on this call has, uh, has, uh, is well practiced at chanting the Metta Sutta, if we want to look at Dharma teachings that give us some guidance here, uh, the Metta Sutta, just a couple of lines from it. Uh, one of my favorite lines of, of the entire chant book is from the Metta Sutta, where it talks about being easily contented and joyous. And then just another line or two later, talking about not desiring great possessions. We really need to, 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 to work towards a transformation, not just in our relationship to the environment, which perhaps can uh, be addressed by technological means. But as long as we are driven by greed, we are going to be confronted continually with these uh, issues of dukkha across our society, across this planet. So he says that the, uh, the ecological problems and the inequitable and hierarchical structures of most human societies are not separate issues. So we need to go into this with that full awareness and, and keep that ever in, in mind, that these are intimately related. And that the suffering that is going to uh, continue to take place due to global warming as we'll see as we get further into the text, it will have a far more dramatic impact on those that are at or near poverty levels. And if, if we think there, there are, there's disruptive uh, refugee displacement now, you know, we haven't seen anything yet. It's going to become unbelievable. And the poverty that's going to emanate out of that and the level of suffering. We get glimpses of that now. But it's going to get so much worse. So much worse. And, and there will be nobody on this planet who's going to be insulated from that there will be warfare across the planet because people are going to be so desperate 
That's why it's so vital that all spiritual traditions begin to take this seriously and begin to bring their teachings to bear on this. And we need to work together in doing that. So one step in that direction is the, uh, the webcast that, uh, that will take place next month. I don't think that's dependent upon anybody traveling anywhere. That will look uh, a lot like, like our, uh, our Zoom conferences these days. So that should be taking place regardless of where we're at with the uh, coronavirus at that point. And that needs to continue and, and just uh, be ever looking to, to make linkages across Buddhist traditions uh, in an interfaith vein, uh, because we all have to come together to work on this issue. And I'm, I'm really convinced that we can, that the capability is there. So my own view of this project we're, we're undertaking is just to launch us on that path and see where that takes us. As I've mentioned uh, to the group uh, in recent weeks, you know, I've already had uh, John Sabin reach out to me from the Oberlin Sangha because of his involvement in, uh, in a group that, if I get the name right, it's uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. And he's been involved with them for about three years. And they do have like a sub chapter within that group of, uh, of Buddhists which he uh, apparently has been leading. So uh, sometime in April, after we've had a chance to, to make a little more headway in this text, he's going to link up with us and talk to us about that organization. So that's just one, one example of where, before our first talk on this, uh, we already have something uh, presenting itself to us. So who knows where that will lead or what else will arise. But uh, it's like the uh, song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi. It responds to the inquiring impulse. Uh, and our inquiring impulse in terms of what can we do, uh, it will respond. And I don't know how, but I, I'm quite certain it will. And, uh, and I, I think we'll be ready uh, to answer that call when it does. And I know some of us already are involved. So it's not that we have to have one particular path that we all jump on as a Sangha. Uh, we just support each other in the various ways that we, we do get involved. So it's just that the point, the main point being that we need to be involved because this, this path is a practice. It's something we do. And if we're doing, if we're active in this world, we have to be engaged in 
this most uh, critical issue that, uh, that I think it's safe to say that we've ever been confronted with. Otherwise, quite frankly, I don't know that Buddhism is worth anything then if we can't be. So in the introduction, Loy goes on, a lot of it is just to kind of set the stage with things that, uh, uh, you know, with us, he's kind of preaching to the choir, of course, talking about uh, how we've become obsessed with exploiting and abusing our actual treasure. You know, we talk about the three treasures, the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Well, there's this, this uh, treasure of our home, our common home, which he describes as a flourishing biosphere with healthy forests and topsoil, lakes and oceans full of marine life, and unpolluted atmosphere. So we exploit and abuse this, our true actual treasure, in order to maximize something that in itself has no value whatsoever, namely digital numbers and bank accounts. What used to just be hard, cold cash, paper, that, that is of no value in and of itself. Well, now we don't even have that. Now it's just uh, numbers that appear in computers. So it's, it's driven by our greed to make those numbers greater and greater that we've been exploiting and abusing our home, our home which we share with so many other beings. And a point he drives home that I've touched on, uh, but it warrants going over one more time. He says the, the uh, ecological crisis is something more than a technological problem or an economic problem or a political problem, although it has aspects of all of those, but rather, it's also a collective spiritual crisis. And therefore, you know, my addition to that is that uh, that implies that it's going to require a collective spiritual solution. It has to, because we really are talking about a transformation in the way people relate to their world, to their life, to their existence. Without it, we're not gonna, we may solve a problem here and there, but we're not gonna get to the root issue. The root issue has to have a collective spiritual solution. And by spiritual, I mean, it, it changes the whole dynamic of our relationship to others, a recognition of our interdependence, which means 
a dropping off of self-centeredness that we can begin to see things more broadly and take others' interests and suffering into account across the board. It's, it's within our nature. Almost all humans have the capability of feeling empathy. So it's rooted within our, our psyche to, to feel compassion, to feel the suffering of others, and to feel the joy of others. We're social animals. It makes up a considerable part of the richness of our lives, just like this wonderful environment does. We just lose sight of it. So as part of this collective spiritual solution, we need to be emphasizing that truth. That has to be part of the foundation of this effort how precious we all are and how precious our home is. And he says the uh, ecological and social challenges we face now go far beyond the individual suffering that Buddhism has conventionally been concerned with. So there would be Buddhist teachers who may focus on the individual just practicing with their own dukkha. How will they respond to these conditions? And it becomes kind of a matter of developing self-resilience. Engaged Buddhism is going several steps beyond that. It's saying as part of our connectedness, we need to see the situation that exists and respond to it. Certainly alleviate individual suffering as the opportunity presents itself, but it has to become a collective uh, endeavor. Collective in terms of how we come together to address it and collective in terms of the nature of the problem we're, we're uh, working on. That it's not just you know, uh, saving uh, each being one at a time. We need to take action on a broader, from a broader perspective. That's what David Loy is speaking to here. And that's a bit of a departure from the approach of some Buddhists still to this day, and certainly the tradition. And he puts it very nicely in terms of, uh, of why, uh, even if we are uh, kind of stretching the tradition, 
why that's that's actually part of Buddhism anyway, because he says the basic teachings of Buddhism have emphasized impermanence and insubstantiality. And these teachings also apply to Buddhism. So Buddhism is not just what the Buddha said, but this path, this tradition that he started. And for us to be part of that tradition on that path at this time seems to imply, and that's certainly the way it seems to me, that we need to be engaged in this collective fashion that it's no longer adequate to go one person at a time working to alleviate their dukkha. That we need to be engaged in activities that get to the root of the dukkha across our society. And and I wanted to just since since this sangha is is uh, is very deeply involved in uh, recovery dharma. That's that's a good example of this interplay between collective and individuals. So you have these uh, these individuals coming together who share uh, a particular uh, type of suffering, of affliction, and they, they work on an individual basis, certainly, but without the collective aspect to it, it, it wouldn't be effective. So it's not that we're ignoring the individual and just kind of becoming uh, collective oriented, but we're recognizing that we, in order to, to skillfully deal with, with a very uh, substantial problem that touches many, many people, that we need to, to take a broader perspective. And always bring that to individuals. Just as we're doing in our response to the uh, pandemic that we're, we're currently confronted with. It's patient by patient, diagnosis by diagnosis. But we're trying to you know, discover uh, what what is the nature of this virus how can we create a vaccination how can we buy extra time so we can uh, stock up our our hospitals and healthcare facilities to be able to to deal with the suffering that will be generated this coming together of the of the uh the uh, uh, general and the particular.
And another way of, of seeing this is David Loy uh, states that engagement in the world is how our individual awakening blossoms. Engagement in the world. And it's how contemplative practices such as meditation or zazen ground our activism, transforming it into a spiritual path. So again, this relationship between engagement and meditation, that it's not that one is the focus rather than the other, it's to see them like the front and back foot in walking, they're, they're, they require each other in order to be effective. If meditation is not engaged, then it's just empty. And if engagement does not have that grounding that meditation can provide, it tends to become uh, part of the problem because through the conditioning that that we're subjected to as part of this society, uh, we tend to interact in ways that uh, are ridden with with uh, conflict causing energy. So we need them both. They're vital. They're you could say uh, in in non-dualistic Buddhist vein that they they really are one: meditation and engagement. We can't separate them out. So from that standpoint, you know, this Buddhist response to our ecological predicament is what Loy is calling ecodharma, which combines ecological concerns with the teachings of Buddhism and related spiritual traditions. And when we enter into this spiritual path, the first thing we need to see and bring to bear in our working on this or any social issue is that the world is not a collection of separate things, but a confluence of natural processes that include us. You know, this is the reality that we awaken to each and every day. We, each and every day we do inflate ourselves into these separate things. But the reality that we're always confronted with, that always informs our existence, is that this confluence of natural processes. Even as we're in a lockdown now with the pandemic, we have a confluence of nat natural processes that we engage in. We're not individuals, even as we're we're in our most individualistic mode right now as we're all kind of separating out, but we're not.
Not even now. We're not a collection of separate things. And that's one of the reasons I think why this kind of experience is kind of unsettling to us is because we're not separate things, but uh, at least on the surface, we're, uh, we're following instructions to, uh, to uh, live our lives in such a way as, as if we are. But if you're like me and you get out and do your daily walk, and now that spring's coming, uh, more and more people are so inclined, uh, you feel like you're part of that community. And it's a growing community. And I can't help but think, will this continue? Even after we return to, to normal. Will this kind of confluence continue to carry us forward in ways rather than the confluence going to the malls, going to the big box stores, go, rather going to the parks to uh, come to appreciate this common home that we have. Because that is part of part of each each of us. I'm convinced when I'm out there and talking to people from six feet away that they get it. They definitely do. It's a joy to be out there appreciating this beautiful gift we have. So part of our endeavor, I think, is to keep that momentum going. Continue to build this deep appreciation for these natural processes. And then Loy, before I, and then I'm gonna uh, finish off my comments here and, and open it up to, for your observations. Loy says that we usually perceive our surroundings as a collection of utensils to be used to achieve our goals, which are typically satisfying our desires. This is where greed enters into the picture. But, then he uh, quotes uh, one of my favorite uh, poets, William Blake. Uh, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. So this ability to get out of our very limited, self-centered view of things and to see things as they truly are. 
to see ourselves as we truly are. Kind of a vital part of that process. And then lastly, uh, since we're, we're just now uh, leaving our uh, uh, study of the Diamond Sutra, where we spent quite a bit of time looking at, at how we cling to concepts and functions and cravings, and that that becomes how we close ourselves up. And the teachings of emptiness Prajnaparamita is how we open ourselves up. It's, it's the entry into the realization of the interdependence of all things, that nothing exists in such a closed fashion. It can't exist in that way. It's impossible. Everything is infinite in that manner infinite because of its interconnectedness with infinite connective lines running through all other beings. So with that, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to stop and uh, ask Keith to unmute everybody. You want to show your comic? I didn't realize Oh, right, right, right. I am. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a good launching point into this. Uh, yeah, there's going to be a, a comic that uh, comes up on your screen here in just a moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm back into... Uh... Changing well, in and out, so I need to go out and reopen the comments. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. And we can start <laughs> the conversation while he's yeah. he's uh, uh, looking for that. So, people what can do we think about all this? People can unmute themselves. Some people can. Um, oh. But I've got it here. Sorry. Ah, there we go. <laughs> all right. We're all unmuted. <laughs> Unless you are muted by yourself. And unfortunately, if, if someone raised that kind of a question in a uh, corporate uh, conference room, that would uh, <laughs> that would be their response. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They would come and get you. <laughs> right. that's, that's, that's why you're all there. There's no other reason. <laughs> all right. There we go. That was me doing that. I can also. Uh, <laughs> this is also the text we're referring to. If anybody needs uh, hmm. to run out and grab it before next Thursday, and I can. Uh, I'll put the deep. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I'm going to try it again, leaving everybody unmuted. Uh, just try to not comment when anyone other than Dean or the person commenting is commenting. It seemed to work pretty good last time. I just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little more background noise, but it was okay. Yeah. So, so with your quote from Keats, mm -hmm. or I mean Blake, Blake, yeah. You know, about every, um, everything is infinite or and um lloyd's uh follow-up of saying we've all got this narrow um conceptualization of everything it, it, it reminds me of let me butcher another another quote like <laughs> butcher <laughs> last time um Vimalakirti, i believe said something to the effect that you know, he said, I'm, I'm just in this 10 by 10 foot room and I'm just going to stay in this 10 by 10 foot, foot room. I'm not going to be healed or cured or whatever until the whole rest of the world is. Right. So something to that effect. Yeah, yeah. It really strikes me. Oh. To match up with what you're... You're, you're getting. Sorry, I, uh, everybody's muted other than Joe and Dean right now, I believe. Okay. So anyway, it just strikes me that it's that that really plays into what you're getting at and Lloyd's getting at. So. Yeah, because what Vimala Kirti is is uh, is doing with that is kind of setting forth that bodhisattva ideal that uh that you know, all beings will need to be saved before the bodhisattva you know goes goes to the other shore uh so to speak that uh that our effort is is engaged very engaged so that i mean what loy is talking to is is definitely uh uh the traditional bodhisattva path it's just taking a somewhat different approach to that because vimala kirti was you know one one individual at a time he was out of that mode of practice and what we're looking at is is taking a different approach uh, a broader uh more uh kind of finding the roots of suffering that are uh, that are rising up and impacting many people at the same time and rather than you know tr going around like uh, like providing food to uh, to different people as important as that is and that's work that needs to be done but you know the real cure is to be able to pr provide society at large with a basic income so that they can you know then they can take care of themselves whatever skillful means is involved in 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 making that happen 
and and our economy is evolving to a point now where you're actually hearing what would have been seen as this hugely radical, uh, crazy notion of guaranteeing people a certain minimum income. You know, in Europe, they're they're talking about that uh, with great seriousness. I think we're some ways off from from having those kinds of discussions here. You know, just sending people checks for two thousand dollars is wigging some people out. And, and uh, you know, in Europe, they're talking about you know ten, fifteen thousand a year is just kind of that's a basic threshold. So that would be one example of of uh, going from from like a food bank phenomenon to as a society just setting something up where you know people need to need to have uh, that kind of uh, of uh, subsistence provided to them. It's part of being being a member of this community of this society and our interdependence. So. It's it's a different way, and of course the environment the environment has we can only address it in that kind of a way. We have to get to the root issues, and it takes and a- the only way we can do that is coming together uh, collectively to uh, work on that. And it takes a collective change of paradigm too, because I mean your cartoon is perfect because the attitude in that room is not just their attitude it's also it's also our attitude it, it, right. it, it, we're we're all conditioned and this notion of um you know the inventiveness and technology of humans over the last few centuries we've abused it in the sense that we could have seen it as oh great we don't, we can put less energy towards the survival and gain material, gaining materials thing, because now we've invented some good, useful things. But but instead, we've done the opposite. It's like, oh, we can have more and more and more. Right. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's never enough. Right. So I mean, that's one metaphor from Buddhism that the hungry ghost that's really rich and appropriate to, to what we find ourselves in. I think it speaks to the the whole idea. There's this idea of unlimited growth, that things can continue to grow and grow and grow, and obviously they can't. Yeah. And yet that's still what we hear about every business. If you don't grow, you're going to die. Exactly. <laughs> growth is, re- is part of survival. Without yeah. growth, you won't survive. And uh, you know, if we if we think of that in in biological terms, uh, there are obviously limits to growth. I mean, you can uh, you know you can get so big physically that uh, that you you're done. And I think that's that's kind of uh, what happens when we set up this notion of, of it's never enough uh, that you're going to have the, the huge disparities in income. And then you're going to have revolts, uh, 
a society like that is going to be a very uh, conflict-ridden, violent society. So it just doesn't work, even for the people that are, are uh, gathering all the all those goodies. Uh, ultimately, there is that limit. And I was mentioning to somebody in the sangha the other day uh, about uh, way before he even became, I think it was before he even became mayor of New York, I heard Mike Bloomfield, uh, Bloomfield, that's my blues, <laughs> Bloomberg. <laughs> that's funny. Mike Bloomberg put it in those terms that the, uh, the one percent has to remain sensitive to the needs of the many uh, or else, you know, they'll be setting up guillotines. So, I mean, he, <laughs> he got it. And I think a lot of other people in the 1% do that, uh, that you can't operate a society that way, that the, the more, 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 you know, constantly need more. It needs to get the, it's kind of like a, a circulatory system in an organism. If we take the economy at large as an organism, you know, that needs to be circulating through and nourishing uh, all the parts of the body. And if it isn't, uh, it's, it's gonna reverberate on the entire body. Nothing's gonna be uh, uh, immune to it because of interdependence. I mean, that's just the nature, nature of it. Uh, it's kind of like Henry Ford's great realization, his awakening that he needed to pay his employees a decent wage so they could afford to buy the cars they were ma manufacturing. <laughs> you know, that, it, it starts right there and then that same concept, you know, goes forward. I had uh, something I heard earlier today that was kind of interesting was there was a climate change talk scheduled on NPR that they put off and then reared today as there was nothing that anyone wanted to hear about other than Corona um, prior to that. But they said now with the coronavirus, one of the things they're very concerned about is that states, individual states like Kentucky, West Virginia, other might start ramping up coal production and restarting coal fired plants to boost the economies in those states um, and undo, and they could undo legislation. It's just, you know, we've been fighting to get passed up until now solely for the reason to stimulate the economy with, you know, climate be damned. Uh, yeah. We can't let this Corona wipe us out. So, you know, it's kind of stepping over the dollar to pick up the dime short sightedness, you know, that you always see. Yeah. I've got something I got to get to, so I've got to bow out. All right, Joe. Thank, thank you, Dean. Thank you, everyone. Yep. See you. Okay. Yeah, we are at nine oh eight. So, but anybody else wants to comment, anybody can bow out whenever they want. Obviously, but yeah, we'll yeah. be respectful of people's time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one <laughs> thing about the uh, with the coronavirus uh, that's heartening are the 
the percentages of people that are uh, responding very negatively to Trump and others starting to push the importance of the economy over people's well-being. So I, I, I'm heartened by that, that in terms of the sense of values, uh, again, I think there's something that, that can definitely be tapped into. It helps. It's a good cure for the cynicism that even I can fall prey to uh, all too easily that, you know, people get it. Even, even though so many people are, are losing jobs, that, uh, that they understand the importance of doing this. So I think that can trans transfer over to the environment too, that people will understand that uh, ultimately uh, it, it's, it's essential. And maybe, as I was saying over the weekend uh, on a couple of occasions, I think the coronavirus maybe helps to drive home this truth that uh, that the longer you delay uh, coming to terms with reality, uh, the the harder the bite's going to be when reality <laughs> does <laughs> reach out and get you. So uh, I think that lesson is being learned here. And that could could also serve us well. I think uh, you know, there's there's reason for hope, and of course there's also reason for despair. So I don't want to sugarcoat it too much either. But I do have some companion reading if anybody is interested and wants to pursue this further. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's backwards as it presents. It's called Spiritual Ecology, The Cry of the Earth. It is a series of essays by various um, environmentalists. It's really very good. I've been reading it along with David Lloyd. I would recommend it to anybody who's interested. Okay. Well, I am, so I'll, I'll be placing that order. Since I can't go to the library, I'll have to dial up the Amazon, I guess. <laughs> but that's okay. And another book, uh, as long as we're at it, uh, I don't know if this will, this is probably mirror image. Uh, it's, no, it's, uh, yeah. it's the, uh, uh, the Pope Francis encyclical. Oh, encyclical, yeah. Uh, Laudato C L A U D A T O and then S I on care for our common home. Uh, so that's that's another one that that I've I've started working on, and I will bring uh, comments from the Pope into this uh, as we move along. Uh, because it really does echo what we're going to be talking about from a Buddhist standpoint. So, anything else before we chant out? Uh-oh. <laughs>
Hold on. I'll take care of it. And everyone is unmuted, by the way. And there we go. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Armageddon are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. All right. All right. Let's learn there. Mute everybody other than Dean prior to chanting out, but <laughs> that was kind of it's all right. We oh, polluted the sound environment a little bit there. Okay. All right, so we'll be Thank back. Uh, we'll be back Sunday. Um, Sunday morning. Back to Colbin then, though. What time Sunday would be the talk? Uh, the talk would be at uh, ten fifty. I think it's ten fifty. Yeah. Ten fifty. All right. Ten fifty. Got it. Yeah. And uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Same. The same Zoom. Yeah, I'm gonna keep using the same Zoom login as long as we can. I don't see any reason why we can't. The only only difficulty I see is that I. To schedule a meeting, you need to either create a Zoom or use an auto-generated Zoom. Or no, use your personal one or an auto-generated one. So it's like I can't schedule a meeting and send out invites, but we're doing it via yeah. email and Facebook. So I think we're okay with just reusing this one yeah. Thursday and Sunday. Yeah, okay. certainly okay, worked well you. tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Safe, safe drive home. Correct. Yeah, over and over. That's what I mean. Once I kind of like looked at the number for a second, and I have actually I've entered it a half a million times too. But it's really okay. Yeah, so three, you use that four, ID four. next time. Anytime, yeah, on your phone, computer, whatever. You yeah. just open Zoom, click join, enter that code, and hit enter, and you should be on. And I'll keep okay. repeating that in the weekly emails. So. Yeah. And I'll put it on Facebook as well. Yeah. Okay. Bye, guys. All right. All right. Good night. Good night.